Good evening, everybody, and welcome to uh, the London School of Economics uh, for this um, panel on human rights and climate change. My name is Stephen Humphreys. I'm an associate professor of international law here in the law department. I've had a bit of a cold all week, so if you hear me coughing in the middle or trying to catch my voice, that's what it is. Um, this event is co-hosted by the Law Department and the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment. So, uh, we are just emerging from what has been a very exciting couple of days here at the LSE, where we've been privileged to host a series of hearings held by the Philippines Human Rights Commission. Uh, the Commission is currently carrying out a national inquiry into the responsibility of the fossil fuel industry for the human rights impacts resulting from climate change. The Philippines, as you will know, is on the front line of climate change impacts. As I'm sure you are all aware, in November th uh, 2013, indeed exactly five years ago to this day, uh, the Philippines was hit by one of the, what was called a super typhoon, uh, recording the highest wind speeds uh, ever, known as Typhoon Haiyan or Super Typhoon Yolanda. Hayung left massive destruction in its wake, including the deaths of 6,000 people. So the Commission has come here to assess the responsibility of 47 of the world's leading fossil fuel and cement companies for these and other human rights harms related to climate change. These London hearings follow on hearings that have already taken place in Manila and New York. Um, at each event, the Commission has had the opportunity to listen to experts in climate science, in human rights law, in uh, climate lobbying, in corporate responsibility, and also to the victims of people who experienced these climate impacts at first hand. Um, the respondent companies have, of course, themselves been invited to listen to and respond to the Commission's proceedings, but so far they have chosen not to do so. So in the two days just passed, we have heard an extraordinary range of expertise on the hard questions of climate accountability, causation, that is, how do we link effects, uh, human rights effects to climate change, uh, to greenhouse gas emissions in one country and effects in another, uh, attribution, that is, how do we find specific emitters, can we find them responsible for the harms that result from their activities, uh, and foreknowledge, did they know in advance that there would be harm? And if so, does that have implications for them? Um, we have heard about the lobbying power of the carbon majors. So these 47 countries are among 100 identified as so-called carbon majors who together account for a preponderance of greenhouse gas emissions uh, since pre the pre-industrial era. And we've heard about the many options they had to mitigate the harms uh, resulting from their activities. So this evening we're going to hear from an eminent panel of experts and academics who've been immersed in these issues for some time. The format is as follows. We're first going to hear about uh, the Grantham Research Institute's work in this area, um, and then we will turn to each of our panelists who will speak for 10 minutes each. Following that, we'll direct some questions towards the panelists, and then uh, I'll open it up for Q&A to you. Um, the evening's events are being recorded, and we hope that it will result in a podcast afterwards to be available online. I have to tell you that in the unlikely event of a fire alarm, the assembly point is directly outside the building towards the post office. 
And I should also ask you to put your phones on silent, please. Wonderful. Um, so let me begin with Joanna Setzer, uh, who largely organized this event and who will speak about the Grantham Institute before we introduce the main panelists. Joanna is undertaking a three-year British Academy postdoctoral fellowship at the Grantham Research Institute on topics to do with climate legislation and litigation. She's eight years' experience as an environmental lawyer in Brazil and holds degrees from the University of Sao Paulo and here at the LSE. Uh, Joanna. Hello. Good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you very much, Stephen, for these words, for introducing uh, the reasons why we are here and uh, just resonating with what you said. I am delighted uh, on behalf of the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment to have hosted the Commission on Human Rights of the Philippines over the past two days uh, with the hearings that took place in London here at the LSE. We were really very fortunate to, to be part of this process, which is really, I believe, it's going to go into history, at least uh, our history of uh, climate change governance and, and uh, litigation. And uh, we really had two very productive, fruitful days of discussions of experts who came, who shared their knowledge, uh, and, and, and hopefully this will help informing the Commission in, in their proceedings. So uh, I'm not going to give a presentation tonight. I am just going to, let's say, advertise a bit the work that we do at the Grantham. Some of you might be familiar, some might not. So um, hopefully for those who don't know uh, this tool that we have that I will uh, mention, uh, it will be a good way to introduce you to this. Um, good, so I'm going to very briefly introduce you to uh, this uh, platform that we have been putting together over the past uh, many years. Uh, we began this work bringing together climate change policies and legislation initially from nine countries, then 33, 66, 99, and now we have really global coverage of all let's say, almost all uh, climate change laws and policies that exist. Um, this resource is, therefore, global, comprehensive, up-to-date. We continue updating it all the time. It's free and it's downloadable. So uh, hopefully it's something that you will be able to use. It's in our website, and uh, I will just show you a few screenshots of how it looks like and how you might be able to use it. So um, this database has uh, two tabs, if, if you can see, one on legislation, one on litigation. So for legislation, we have over 1,500 laws and policies. So it's both executive and legislative acts that explicitly address climate change, uh, but also energy and land use. Uh, you can search, looking at the region, the country, the year, uh, country importance as emitter, and so on. I won't go into much detail. Uh, but 
it's really a very interactive database. You search, you find what you want, and then everything can be downloadable in an Excel spreadsheet. And you can use this data for research, for policy making. If you're a legislator, you can use it to uh, know what other countries that are slim, similar to yours are doing. So it has been used over the past years by many people in, in many different sectors. Um, we also have this map. So, for example, you, you can uh, look at India, how many laws and policies, what is their significance in terms of emissions. And then once you click in the country that you've selected, you get something like this where you have country data from their N NDCs to uh, their GDP, rank as emitter, but also what is their approach to climate change, what is their legislative portfolio, executive, and then also litigation is here. So you, 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 you get indicators, you get a lot of information here, and also summary of all their legislative and executive acts. Uh, translated into English, some we also have links, but you, at least you have a summary uh, available. And with this, we, of course, this is a tool in itself, it's been used, but also we do our own research. So just this week, for example, one of our colleagues uh, published a paper where she, um, Dr. Michal Nachmani, she, she compares the uh, NDCs that have been submitted with what national policies have are they compatible? Are they reinforcing each other? What is missing there? So we do research policy work based on this, and it's something that all of you can use as well. So, oops, sorry. Uh, the other tab, the one on the right, is the tab on litigation. This is something that we introduced more recently, and it's thanks to a partnership that we established with the, the Columbia Center, Sabian Center, uh, on Climate Law at the Columbia University. And uh, we have now over 270 cases that explicitly deal with climate change in 25 jurisdictions. There are also 900 cases only in the U.S. The U.S. is far, far the, the largest litigator. And these are currently not yet in the database. So far they are in the Sabin Center's database, but we will um, uh, soon have them also in our website. But uh, the, these are the cases that we know so far. There might be more cases, and if you know of any that is missing, there's this little button here, write to us. You can always drop an email and say, you missed out a case in Indonesia, and give us the details. This will be incorporated. Um, and then with this, we do some analysis. Uh, for example, you might be surprised to know that most of the cases, unlike cases such as Urgenda or the, this investigation, they are not really s dealing with climate change in a, as a core issue. It, it might be a, a, a part of the case, but it's not really central to the case. So many planning applications or EU ETS allowances uh, being uh, questioned. And most cases are brought by corporations against governments. So uh, unlike cases that we know of Greenpeace and uh, other organizations questioning corporations or governments why they're not doing enough, most cases indeed are brought by corporations against governments. So this kind of thing you can, again, also find in our database. Uh, what I mentioned about the difference between those cases that have climate change as its core and 
the majority, which is still uh, something that is peripheral. So just a, a few examples, Urgenda as being uh, a very well-known case where this is a core part of the case and uh, other EU ETS cases that is peripheral. So before I finish, I just wanted to mention that uh, we see uh, a clear increase in number and indeed quality of litigation emerging. And, and, and this is something that is being, uh, let's say, supported by many different people. And here I just brought a few examples to show. Uh, this is Jeffrey Sachs. He came here last year, and he, has, he, he presented his proposal for climate justice. And Jeffrey Sachs' proposal is basically flood the courts with legal cases. This is an economist mm -hmm. that... You know, I, I was expecting he would present an economic model of climate justice, but he, he's been a real uh, advocate of using the courts. Similarly, uh, James Hansen, former NASA scientist, he is uh, supporting this also well-known case, Juliana, uh, in the U.S., and his granddaughter here sitting next to him is one of the plaintiffs. And, and the last photo is a photo uh, from yesterday, Professor Miles Allen, uh, a very well-known uh, climate scientist who has already been to the U.S. providing uh, technical uh, advice to the judge on attribution and climate science. So we see how economists and scientists are becoming part also of uh, this uh, trend. And... Um, I will finish with this slide just saying that we, we are definitely seeing uh, more and more of strategic litigation, which uh, might have not succeed in, in court, but have other impacts, as, for example, the fact that we are all here discussing this case and how this will impact corporations and governments. The, the risk of litigation is increasing, and this is something that is quite recent. We also see a human rights turn, how these cases are bringing human rights arguments, and uh, as the Commission on Human Rights of the Philippines, using human rights institutions to, to, to bring these two areas that until recently were separated, in, at least in uh, international law. And finally, as I mentioned, the use of science, how science, how, how these cases are appropriate in science, understanding science, and, and indeed, let's say, making scientists think in a different way, how can they provide science that is useful for courts? So the case that we, will, uh, that we have been hosting here and that we will certainly discuss tonight has all of these items. And I will now stop here and, and, and give the word to my colleagues who will certainly give you more insights into this and other interesting cases. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Joanna. Um, now, we're actually short one of our four panelists, who is uh, Commissioner Roberto Cadiz himself. He is presumably, we're told, on the way. Uh, I think we're just going to forge ahead uh, in the order that we have, and hopefully he'll, he'll come and join us before we're done. Um, so uh, I'll introduce the three speakers that we have to begin with on the panel. First up in this case will be uh, Christian Casper. 
she is, Christian is litigation counsel for Greenpeace International, where she advises on international environmental law in the areas of climate change, energy, toxic pollution, water, and forests. And she has 15 years' experience in this role. She's a registered attorney with Colorado Bar, and she holds a foreign legal consultant practice, a permit, excuse me, with the Law Society of Upper Canada. Um, following Christian, we'll turn to Dr. Luke Harrington, who's a researcher and college lecturer at the University of Oxford. He's a climate scientist who focuses on climate change, uh, focuses on changes to extreme weather events due to global warming and on the differences in the emergence of heat extremes between low-income and high-income countries. Um, thirdly, then, we'll turn to Dr. Annalisa Savaresi. Uh, Dr. Savaresi is a lecturer in environmental law at the University of Stirling where she has researched and written extensively on climate change and human rights. Since 2017, she has been a member of the Roundtable on Environment and Climate Change, advising the Scottish Government's Standing Council on Europe and Brexit. So you thought you got away from it. Um, Let's begin then with Kristen. Might need help getting out of this. Exit. Thank you. Put me down. And it's if you press down here, I'm sure it'll come. Uh, it's this way. Great. First, I would like to thank the organizers of this event and a very special thanks to Joanna Setzer of LSC for hosting this week's inquiry hearing and also to Annalisa Savassi of the University of Stirling for her stellar support for this work. Please allow me to tell you a story. It's a short story, um, and I just want to go to the beginning. Hold on once again. That's at the end. Okay. So please allow me to tell you a story, but let me get to the very beginning so we can start the story. Um, It's a short story about how I first became involved in human rights and climate change and how Greenpeace, a global environmental organization, turned to human rights to seek climate protection for all. My story about human rights and climate change is ultimately a story about people and communities using the law an imperfect and evolving tool, yet one of the strongest tools we have to make change. The law gives us hope of accelerating the energy transformation and bringing greater justice and dignity to those most most impacted by climate change. While there are many examples of other work, Greenpeace's full-blown campaign using the power of the law was born out of the political failure at the Copenhagen Climate Conference. Any of you there? I don't know. It started there. I will never forget this moment in time because it was also around the time when I gave birth to my daughter. I nursed my baby on a couch, scouring over climate science and legal articles and reading stories of communities risking everything to resist fossil fuels. I'm sure that one or two of those scholars that wrote those early articles are in this room tonight. So I want to thank them for researching innovative legal theories that we are implementing today. During this time, Greenpeace, along with partners at Frank Bold, a very innovative um, law firm in the Czech Republic, supported a small island nation uh, to challenge a dirty lignite power plant located on the other side of the planet. This challenge resulted in a determination that this climate-vulnerable country 
was an affected state, and it required a plan to be put in place to offset carbon emissions. This was a David and Goliath moment. The brave action of Federated States of Micronesia created a new narrative about the threats posed posed by climate change to the most vulnerable countries, yet the least responsible. It helped establish a new and powerful tool to address human rights implications of climate change. Then, in 2013, another mind bomb exploded on the public discourse of climate change. After years and years of laboring over corporate reports, Mr. Rich he- Richard Heady um, published his groundbreaking study, The Carbon Majors. The study found that just 90 entities, 90 carbon producers, the so-called carbon majors, were responsible for two-thirds of historical emissions. The study became an aha moment for Greenpeace. It piled on the decades' worth of research that Greenpeace USA and others conducted into, that exposed the nefarious role of ExxonMobil and others in undermining climate science in action. Many lawyers immediately recognized that this was an important building block for future litigation. From that point on, the fossil fuel industry could no longer hide behind the flawed narrative that everyone is responsible for climate change, therefore no one can be held accountable. In fact, it became crystal clear that who is to blame for the crisis that we're facing today that is infringing on the human rights of many. In November that year, Super Typhoon Haiyan slammed into the Philippines. Today marks the fifth anniversary of that faithful day. Thousands died. Millions are still affected. In the weeks following that storm, people began to ask questions. They asked, did climate change make this super typhoon worse? If so, shouldn't the companies that have contributed the most to and profited the most from climate pollution be held responsible for their role. Community leaders in the Philippines, like my hero, Derek Kabe, please raise your hand, I think you're in the room tonight, who is in this room, decided that enough is enough. It's time to stand up to the fossil fuel companies that have long, long understood the risk posed by climate change, yet continue to produce, market, and sell coal, oil, and gas when used as directed, present an imminent and severe risk to fundamental human rights. In 2015, a large group of Filipinos, community organizations in Greenpeace Southeast Asia, Philippines, submitted a petition requesting the Commission on Human Rights of the Philippines to conduct an investigation into the responsibility, um, the, into the responsibility of the carbon majors for climate-related harms. And I'm just going to read this. Um, So fast forward to today. We've just finished two days of intensive dialogue. Few. We are forever grateful to the Commission on Human Rights, um, in particular Honorable Commissioner Cadiz, for taking on the challenge of conducting an inquiry. We are also grateful to the London School of Economics for hosting the inquiry hearings. And there have been many other hearings in Manila and in New York City, hosted by the Vance Center for International Justice and the New York City Bar Association. The investigation is a microcosm of the global wave of action that is happening right now. So let me share three insights with you. First, inspired global, a global rights-based movement for climate protection is emerging, inspired by past social just, justice causes. People are connected and winning. So 
So, for example, there's the Urgenda decision in which the uh, appeals court upheld the lower court's decision requiring the government to reduce emissions to protect the rights of people. In Colombia, the Supreme Court found the government liable for not halting deforestation of the Amazon, which was leading to increasing temperatures in the country and threatening young people's rights to life, health, food, water, a healthy environment. And that's a picture of those young people. So the second insight I want to share with you tonight is that the climate crisis is a human rights crisis. People will continue to turn to the courts to demand protection of human rights. Climate science, and in particular IPCC reports, serve as the evidentiary basis for climate cases we are seeing. This includes attribution studies that have shown that human influence is, having, is increasing the probability of climate impacts, such as heat waves. So there, there's a probability that they're going to recur more often. A case that is close to my heart is a senior, is senior woman uh, for climate protection. So this group, senior, this association, is made up of 1,000 senior women, age 65 and older. Um, they believe that the shortfalls in the climate and energy policies of Switzerland are threatening their human rights to life and health enshrined in the Constitution and the European Convention of Human Rights because those shortfalls are leading to greater chances and increased likelihood of severe heat waves, and older women are particularly affected. But it really shouldn't take communities going to court. Um, some, some have begun to demand that lawmakers draft climate and energy policies that are in line with constitutional and international human rights law. For example, the Center for, um, Center for Environmental Rights and Greenpeace Africa have been actively participating in the public consultation process for the country's electricity plan. And they have been requesting that the plan be compliant, not only with environmental law, but also with Section 24 of the Constitution, which enshrines the right to a healthy environment for present and future generations. So let me move to the third insight. The third insight is that there is mounting evidence that the fossil fuel industry is responsible for climate change, and climate litigation is a material risk that needs to be disclosed. Climate and attribution science helps identify who is being harmed or threatened with harm and who is responsible for creating that problem and what actions must be taken now to prevent or compensate for climate damage. This science is really could be very important for all cases around the world. So, for example, there's a study by the, led by the Union of Concerned Scientists that shows that the emissions trace to the 90 carbon producers, the carbon majors, contributes to 40 to 50 percent, 42 to 50 percent in the rise of global mean surface temperature. This study helps establish the causal link um, that is needed in litigation. Climate impacts, such as hotter temperatures, are now foreseeable risk risks. In addition to scientific evidence, NGOs such as the Center for International Environmental Law um, and, uh, and many others um, and journalists have revealed that the fossil fuel industry has had, had early knowledge of climate risk and plenty of opportunities to act on that knowledge, but has repeatedly failed to do so. Again, foreseeability is a key to any legal claim. Since his pivotal speech in 2015, the governor of Bank of England, Mark Carney, has repeatedly warned that climate change could have catastrophic impact on the global financial system. 
This includes carbon extractors and emitters and their insurers being hit hard with compensation claims. Subsequently, companies such as Chevron are now starting to publicly disclose in their reports that climate change presents a material risk. Chevron is correct on this point. The risk of litigation is increasing. And a good example of this is the very recent case brought by the New York Attorney General um, against Exxon. The New York Attorney General alleges that there was a fraudulent scheme to systematically and repeatedly deceive investors about the significant impact of future climate change regulations could have on the company's assets and value. Let that sink in. At the same time, U.S. cities, counties, and, and one state are suing to recover the costs of climate change. So let me just conclude here. People all over the world, the people here and so many of you in this room, are working harder than you ever have. We know we have such a limited time to turn things around. Um, so I just, with the brain power that is here, I want to encourage you to tell me, how can we, how can Greenpeace, how can the movement do things better? And then more importantly, I'd love to, you to tell me how you're going to come and help out in this. Because um, everyone has a role in this newly emerging movement. So please, come and be a part of it. Thank you very much indeed, Kristen. Um, over to you, Luke. Do you have... We have permission. Um, no. oh. oh. Maybe Luke can... Very good, we had to walk the last kilometer. <laughs> the transport is going on in the corner again. Take care of yourself. How slow the bus is going. Shall we let you start and let Luke speak? And then we'll turn to you sure. if that's okay. Sure. Um, go ahead. Um. Yeah, no, I don't have slides. I don't know that I can have Um, okay, hello everyone. Um, so I'm a scientist, um, so I've been invited here tonight, and thank you for inviting me, um, to try to provide some context about the science which sort of underpins um, a lot of the work that's been going on here. Um, and the way that I see it, this, this inquiry that has taken place, um, I think there have been three um, pivotal stages in, in uh, climate science research that has happened over the last decade which have helped um, to shape this inquiry. So uh, one of them was mentioned earlier, so there was this really pivotal study which came out in 2013, I believe, which is basically the, this notion of um, carbon majors, so basically a study which managed to trace back all of the uh, cumulative emissions of carbon dioxide, actually also methane as well, um, over the last, since 1851, um, to these 90 um, large emitters. Um, and I believe that of the 51 or 47, I could be getting this wrong, um, investor-owned emitters, they were responsible for 21% of the cumulative emissions over the last 150 years. Um, so that's one thing, right? We can say these companies have been responsible for X amount of the emissions to date. Number two was um, a sequence of papers which came out in 2009, um, including by my colleague Miles Allen, um, and it was basically simplifying the, the entire equation of climate change. And basically they showed that um, 
you didn't have to worry about emission rates or greenhouse gas concentrations, which was previously a lot of discussions in the past. What they showed is that, in actual fact, because um, long-lived greenhouse gases like CO2 accumulate in the atmosphere and they stay there for a really long time, we can figure out that basically um, all we need to worry about is the cumulative amount of CO2 that we're putting into the atmosphere. And basically what they managed to show was there's a really nice linear relationship between um, the amount of CO2 that's going up into the atmosphere and global average warming. Um, and off the top of my head, I think it's roughly about um, a trillion tonnes of CO2 um, per two degrees. So there's some uncertainty about that. And then the third point, um, the third advancement in the research community, which I think is probably being um, quite useful for these sorts of um, investigations that are happening, is this idea of uh, attribution, or extreme event attribution um, more specifically. So we know that um, increases in global mean temperature, that's all well and good, but that's not what climate change, that's not how it affects people. We know that it, um, the effects actually come about via changes in extreme weather events. And what's really important is for us to be able to understand um, what is weather and what is climate change. And that right there, that framing is a red herring. That isn't how we should be talking about it. Um, instead, what we have been developing over the last uh, 15 years is actually reframing this question. So instead, what we want to talk about is when there's an extreme event that happens, um, we want to know whether and to what extent climate change exacerbated either the intensity or the frequency of those types of events. Um, now, the first study which took this approach of extreme event attribution was, I believe, uh, 2004, and it was looking at the 2003 heatwave in Europe. Um, I think about 70,000 people died in that event. Um, and the first study that came out in 2004, a Nature paper um, by colleagues at the Met Office, they showed that um, that event, that European heatwave, was twice as likely to have happened um, than in a world where we hadn't emitted all of the um, greenhouse gas emissions and other types of forcings that we had put into the atmosphere. So there's a doubling in likelihood that that event happened. Um, those same authors actually came up with another study uh, in 2015, and they showed that in the intervening period between 2004 and 2015, that, that number, the doubling in risk, had actually increased. Um, it was actually now 10 times more likely that you're going to see this 2003-like heat wave um, in the present day versus if you had a counterfactual world where we hadn't emitted any of these greenhouse gases. Um, I'm going to very quickly try to give a very brief summary. Um, I wish I had slides, but I don't. So basically, for us to be able to do this um, sort of analysis, we have to use climate models. Um, and we have to use a lot of them, because um, basically we're talking about the extreme tails of the distribution. Um, so what we do is we basically run climate models, which we hope um, are the best characterization of the climate today. So we run, um, for the example of the 2003 heat wave, we run model simulations of the year 2003 many, 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 many thousands of times. And we say, okay, how many of those model years did we witness a 2003 light heat wave for something that severe or worse? Um, and then we, because we've got climate models, we can actually repeat this simulation, this experiment, but what we do is we remove all of the human influences that have been put into the atmosphere, um, which we know quite well. So we, not only do we remove um, all the CO2 emissions, but we also remove um, M2O, methane emissions, and also other things like aerosol emissions that were put into the atmosphere of the last um, 200, 250 odd years. We run the exact same model 
over and over and over again, thousands and thousands of times. And then we say, okay, um, this is a very rare event. We've now run 5,000 model years, and we find that in this um, world which is as close as possible to the present day climate, we find that that type of heatwave happened 20 times. Um, and in the alternative world, the counterfactual simulations out of all of these thousands of events, um, it wasn't the case that there was no instances of this heatwave happening. It did still happen in a world without climate change. But basically, say for example, we only saw it happening five times. So what we would say then is that there was four times, a four times greater likelihood of that heatwave happening as a result of those human um, influences on the climate. Um, that's one approach. This field has been developing rapidly over the last decade, um, and there has been some work that has been done on Typhoon Haiyan, which is um, certainly a catalyst for this inquiry to an extent. Um, and basically, they had to take a slightly different approach. Um, so what they did was they took the large-scale circulation setup which happened for this event, and then they ran um, a weather forecasting model, so like we have for the weather forecast in the news, um, and they tried to see how close they could get to replicating um, the event as it was. And they do a really good job. Um, and then they repeat this process, but what they do is they tinker with um, the sea surface temperatures. So what they do is they remove human estimates of how much warming has happened for the sea surface temperatures. And um, they also play around a wee bit with sea level rise, but I'll get to that. Um, and basically what they find is that um, given the setup of this event happening, they found that... Um, both uh, the, the pressure minimum in the middle of this typhoon was much lower than um, in the present-day scenarios than in the world without climate change. And also, I believe, the, the wind speeds from the, the peak wind speeds of the typhoon were between 5 and 30% more severe um, than these alternative scenarios. So the wind speeds were definitely more intense. Um, for the storm surges that occurred... I have no idea how much time I've got left, sorry. Um, <laughs> it was exactly two and a half minutes. That's not ideal, okay? Um, <laughs> so, so for the um, storm surge, which was um, very much um, responsible for a large amount of the impacts from this event, I think they've measured it at being about 5.5 metres of this peak storm surge height. They identified that um, 0.5 metres of the storm surge was the result of um, wind-driven increases um, in maximum sea level height. Interestingly, um, they did do a sub-experiment where they played around with um, the additional 0.3 metres of sea level rise that we've seen over the observed record. And they actually found no discernible change in storm surge height, which is a bit counterintuitive. And um, the authors basically argued that, in actual fact, 90% um, of this massive storm surge in this area was a result of the very unique bathymetry of the um, Bay of... I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Bay of Lite... Sorry, I might have done that wrong. Um, so in actual fact, the, the additional sea level rise wasn't a factor. This number of about four and a half metres was as a result of the seiche which occurred in this bay, um, and that didn't change as a result of an additional increase in the mean sea level rise. So it's a bit counterintuitive, and some initial analysis came out, basically tried to argue that, hey, we've seen X amount of sea level rise, that should have had some proportional increase in the storm surge height. And often what we find is it's not that straightforward. Um, now, we've basically talked about... Oh, yeah, I'll do this in one minute. Um, this was one approach, right, where we're talking about how has the intensity of the event happened uh, changed in response to climate change. But I've, 
In actual fact, that's somewhat of a useful framing, but what we actually want to talk about is what is the risk of these types of events happening in the future? Um, would argue uh, that that's probably a more useful framework for um, certainly planners for the future and things like that, and that's actually not the answer that you can get out of these questions. Um, by running a weather forecast model with the same circulation setup, deliberately avoid the question of how, more, how much um, was the frequency of these types of events changing? And the answer is we don't know. Um, there is some evidence to suggest that, in actual fact, um, some of these typhoon tracks could be tracking more northwards in the future. Um, and some people suggest that uh, we should try to avoid this um, issue and say that you know, there's too much uncertainty. Um, but there are some results which have been found for different parts of the world where um, these changes, potential changes in the dynamics of the event can actually have some counterintuitive results. So um, I'm from New Zealand. We had in a situation where basically um, if you do the same large-scale circulation setup for an extreme rainfall event, you find that the intensity of that event um, was more severe as a result of climate change. But the frequency of those types of events was actually becoming less likely in the future, and it was because of dynamical changes in, in the westerly winds that were happening over the country. Um, and so probably almost like an open question is for the panel perhaps later on is that the way in which we frame these, these analyses um, can differ. And the question is, are we interested in the changes in the intensity of these events, um, which most people would assume that changes in the intensity and changes in the frequency go in the same direction? Um, it's not always the case. Um, and there are actually some differences in how we frame our analyses as to whether we're trying to talk about questions to do with liability or questions to do with planning for the future and planning what we're expecting to happen in terms of how often these sorts of things will be happening in the future. And that was about number two on my list of seven things. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, Luke. We've decided to stick with the order we started with, so Annalise will go next, followed by the Commissioner. Thank you very much, Stephen. Um, I wonder how I find my PowerPoint now, but here it is. Excellent. So, thank you very much again for having me here tonight. It's a great pleasure to address this audience. As Stephen mentioned, I'm an academic, but I'm, I'd say, an engaged academic. And this is one of the questions I like to engage with. The question of this inquiry is very much at the heart of what I've cared very much for as a lawyer and as a scholar brings together my interest in the intersection between human rights and environmental law and at the same time climate change law and what we are doing about it. Now, um, I'm very glad to have provided a little bit of technical advice to the Commission. I was one of many, many um, that have lended a hand in the process of this inquiry. And I'd like to acknowledge the input of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Jacques Arman and Dr. Joanna Sismas. One is at Dundee University and the other is at York University because they are also contributing to the work that I'd be presenting tonight. This is based on an early paper uh, in which we captured our reflection um, addressed in the technical questions that have faced the Commission. So I try not to keep this too academic, but the job I'm faced with in this small presentation is to put this inquiry into perspective of the overall picture of climate change litigation that is ongoing and is trying to explain what role human rights law can play 
in this bigger picture. So, um, Christine has already painted a, a very clear picture of what this inquiry is about. Uh, as lawyers, I'm sure many of you will be lawyers in the room. When we are thinking about the impacts of climate change, we are thinking about three things essentially. Damage to property, damage to persons, and damage to the environment. So how do we address these three enormous questions when we're talking about the impacts of climate change? Because we know that some of these impacts are happening, but we know much, much more is coming. And this is a clear big question for lawyers to address. Now, already in 2007, an excellent paper, those of you who are interested in this uh, question, should really read this paper. It's a very long paper, but a very good one. I always uh, give it to my students as a reading. My professors for and Noel Camper addresses the key questions about liability for the impacts of climate change. And they ask who should be liable, for what, on what legal basis, and why. It's always important when we're talking about law to understand why are we doing what we are doing. Why do we want to hold anybody liable or accountable? What is the rationale we are pursuing? So when we're talking about who, clearly two questions come to mind, and Kirsten has already mentioned this. We can talk about state actors, and we've heard of Urgenda, we've heard of the Justicia, both cases dealt with state actors. But we can also talk about non-state actors, as in the inquiry that we are discussing here tonight. For what? Exactly the issues I mentioned earlier. Damage to persons, damage to property, and or damage to the environment. What is the legal basis? Where do we find the law that we could use in order to hold this subject accountable? We can draw on international law instruments or national law instruments. And here you can imagine as many as litigation scenarios as you can possibly can, because this is where we are now. We have almost a white canvas that is started to be painted on, but we still have quite a lot of exploration to make. Um, now, the important question is why? Why do we want to use liability tools? Well, because of compensation and restitution concerns, of course, always when damage is at stake, but also to prevent further harm and to uh, force the polluters to internalize the cost, change behavior moving forward. Now, how does this translate into what we are doing here? Um, well, clearly we have a scenario where we are talking about claims between non-state actors tonight. So the inquiry that we are discussing tonight is in this big picture looking at non-state actors bringing other non-state actors before, uh, as it happens, a national human rights commission. But there is, of course, other scenarios, and we will not be talking about them because they were already mentioned by Kirsten, but uh, clearly there can be claims between state and non-state actors and interstate claims. This is a scholarly example for the time being. As we know, no state has ever taken another state to court for climate change impacts yet, but who knows? Give it a bit of time, and it may happen as well. Um, and here I also have a reference to the excellent database that Joanna already mentioned, curated by Columbia Law School. Now, the Carmel Mayor's inquiry is sitting in an interesting place because it's the first inquiry where we have non-state actors, 
Filipino citizens and civil society organizations taking on over non-state actors in the shape and guise of a carbon maze. However, the legal basis upon which this is done is important because we're talking about human rights law. So we're not talking about tort law, we're not talking about administrative law or criminal law. This was used in, for example, the Justicia or in the Urgenda case. Um, what is the legal basis? Again, an interesting one because the Philippines is a monist legal system for non-international lawyers. This means that there is a, a, the national and international legal rights can be brought into a complaint such as this um, on equal footing. Now, what are the main challenges to the arguments put forward by the petitioners? This is the questions that get people like me excited. What are the hurdles on their way? There was first a question of extraterritoriality. Of course, the carbon mayors are not headquartered in the Philippines, and this was an important question for the Commission to at least consider and indeed put forward by the carbon mayors themselves. Uh, then there is a question of causation and attribution. That of retrospectivity, i.e., um, can we really hold anybody accountable for something that was lawful at the time when the pollution was carried out by the carbon maze? And finally, is there an adequate remedial action to be had through human rights instruments for this kind of harm? Um, now, we put forward a technical brief, and uh, it's there, there is a link, but if you Google my name, you will find it. Um, there's only me with this name on Google. Uh, so uh, I will not go into the details because we really don't have time. What I would say, though, is that we heard this week that there are very clear questions coming out, uh, clear answers to these questions coming out from the expert evidence the, the Commission has heard. First of all, in order to prove causation, um, the petitioner needs to demonstrate that the obligations of corporations encompass human rights violations. And we heard Lene Wendlan from the Office of the High Commissioner on Human Rights saying that it's increasingly well accepted that corporations have human rights obligations. Um, then we also heard that there is a, a clear scientific evidence that the corporations, the carbon mayors, have contributed to climate change in such a way as to amount to a breach of human rights. And Miles Allen was, again, providing excellent evidence of this. Now, is it possible to apportion responsibility for human rights breaches associated with the impacts of climate change? Rodolf Verheyen was providing excellent testimony two days ago about how she's using the same kind of arguments in Germany to argue for her clients on the basis of tort law and administrative law. But the issue, though, is the same arguments can be run in a different context on, on the basis of human rights ground. And indeed, this is quite standard practice, at least in the context of environmental damage, so the same reasoning could be applied. Okay. Finally, there is the issue of retrospectivity. So there is evidence of corporations' awareness of climate change and its impacts, and this we even heard from the um, uh, think tank influence map. They have been even keeping track of what the carbon mayors have been doing in order not to reveal this information. 
And finally, Professor Shu from Oxford University argued that failure to act on this knowledge may be regarded as a source of responsibility. So there is clear challenges to proving the complaints of the petitioners, but there is also clear answers emerging from the <laughs> thinking that so many scholars and experts are putting into these questions. And of course, it's about uh, in leaving the commission to do their work now, and I don't want to in, in any way preempt the outcome of their um, inquiry, but what I would say is this. Um, the commission has already set an important precedent by demonstrating that a national human rights institution can actually look into the impacts of climate change on the enjoyment of human rights for human rights violations that have been carried out by actors that are not headquartered in the Philippines. So this is important, and it can open the way to similar complaints elsewhere. If the Commission should find that, indeed, corporate responsibility for human rights violations can be um, attributed to the carbon mayors, that would be a primer, and who knows where we will go from there. I will not keep you any longer, and uh, I'll be very happy to discuss this further with you. Thank you very much. Um, wonderful. Thank you very much indeed, um, Annalisa. Um, so we have our fourth speaker, um, Commissioner Roberto uh, Cadiz, uh, who represents the Philippine Commission on Human Rights, and I'm delighted to introduce him, I must say. Um, Commissioner Cadiz is a focal commissioner for business and human rights, and Environment and Sustainable Development Goals. Um, Commissioner Cadiz is a practice litigator and was previously the executive director of the NGO Libertas in Manila. He has degrees in philosophy and law, and he has run judicial reform and rule of law projects for USAID and UNDP. And I'm very pleased to hand over to you, Commissioner. Uh, thank you very much. As I, I'm uh, situating myself in this forum, I am a sort of a square peg in a round hole because I do not represent any of the parties. We represent an, an institution, a forum that happened to be the one that the petitioners chose for uh, hearing this, uh, their petition. So I'm going to talk about how uh, national human rights institutions, such as the Commission on Human Rights of the Philippines, uh, as a state-based non-judicial mechanism, uh, may be utilized uh, to complement court litigation um, efforts uh, and relate that to the climate change inquiry that has been filed uh, before our, our commission. Unlike courts, uh, national human rights institutions are generally regarded as weak forums or weak venues for seeking remedies because, first, uh, they do not have compulsory processes as a general rule. We do not have compulsory powers. And if at all, we also have very weak enforcement jurisdiction. But the other side of NHRIs is that... Uh, in the pursuit of inquiries, we are not bound by the technical 
by the limiting concepts of territorial jurisdiction, enforcement jurisdiction, in deciding on whether or not to take on a case. That would be a consideration if you were a court, but since we are a human rights commission, we, do not, we are not concerned because we, we do not have the jurisdiction to enforce uh, uh, rulings anyway. We, we operate by moral suasion. The nature of courts is that they, but the nature of courts are advantages over courts is that courts move very slowly. They're always looking for precedents, always looking backward as they attempt to move forward. In that sense, they have little inertia in terms of looking at nascent or cutting edge issues. And as uh, most of the lawyers here know, uh, in, in uh, a relatively new case such as climate change, judges would normally shy away from making definitive rulings. Of course, there are exceptions such as the Orienda case, but as a general rule, we have studied the court cases seeking to link climate change uh, to human rights, and, and at, at this point, we can say that there are no clear paths uh, or tendencies to courts. The, the rulings have been very uh, undecided on, on either side. Um, so, N, but NHRIs, they look at the larger, larger picture. They examine the context of classes of people and how human rights principles apply to them, unlike cases before courts, they look at the particular context of the parties. So NHRIs, uh, as far as we're concerned in, in our commission, uh, should be in a good position to addressing challenges concerning uh, <coughs> new issues. Uh, they should be challenged to test boundaries and create new paths. They should be bold and creative instead of timid and docile. They should be more idealistic instead of less and less pragmatic. They should lead the way in helping establish soft laws, which can later on become hard laws. And they should be able to see beyond legal technicalities and establish guiding principles that can later on become binding treaties. In short, they should be able to set the bar of rights protection to higher standards. So, in 2015, a petition was filed before us, the, f the very first petition filed before a national human rights institution seeking to frame climate change as a human rights issue. There were no legal pre precedents that, could, have, uh, that, would have guide that could guide us. We could have easily refused to accept the petition, but based on the principles that I earlier mentioned, we did decide to accept uh, the petition. And we said that our in inquisitorial process would be first dialogical rather than adversarial. We are not a court. What we seek is a dialogue to come up with a solution. We are not, uh, we said that we were not intending to award damages for or against any party. We said that because we had no uh, compulsory processes, then we would operate upon the principle of 
persuasion rather than compulsion. We were not out to threaten anybody that if they did not appear before our forum, we would uh, be issuing adverse orders against them, nothing of that sort. We said that our process would be inclusive, it would be transparent, we would observe due process, although we would not be as technical as courts. And finally, we said that the, our process would be global, recognizing the fact that even as the case was, just, was filed before a humanized commission of the Philippines, the issue is really global in character. And we said that we were going to reach out to experts and, uh, and, and, and to resource persons even outside the Philippines. We were uh, intent to turn this petition into a global dialogue on climate change. And so we have heard and received evidence in a formal but not too technical process. Um, the reason why we are, I am here now in London is because over the past two days we listened to experts uh, around this area. Um, and also to underscore uh, the point that climate change is really a global discourse and not just a local discourse. Even as we are most affected by climate change, we were visited by the strongest typhoon to have uh, visited Earth in recorded history called Typhoon Haiyang, which caused the deaths of God knows how many, but between 6,000 and 10,000 in a few hours. So what do we hope to come out of this inquiry? We want to, among other things, uh, we want to help establish clear mechanisms and processes for redressing human rights victims resulting uh, from climate change. We want to help establish standards for corporate reporting on activities involving carbon emissions. We want to clarify and vindicate rights connected with climate change justice under regional and international human rights law. We want to be able to outline a minimum core of rights and duties relevant to climate justice and develop a model statute on legal remedies for climate change. Three minutes, all right. Uh, beyond all of the, the above, we want to show that national human rights institutions can help develop precedents and assist courts in the discourse of nascent or developing issues. If findings of NHRIs are based on a substantial and credible on substantial and credible evidence gathered in a process that is fair, then our findings may be cited and, and accorded great respect in judicial proceedings later on. NHRIs may indeed be utilized in a global way to complement court-directed initiatives to address transboundary issues with extraterritorial obligations. Many, many challenges to our jurisdiction in accepting the case were made uh, by, of course, by the, by the respondents in, in this case. And as a final message uh, uh, to perhaps inspire other NHRIs who might care to listen, it, it really uh, would depend on the political will of the national human rights institution on whether or not they would pursue um, the important cases that are being brought before them. And uh, so the message really is that we are not as technical as courts, 
and if we have the political will, NHRI should be able to handle or hurdle all these uh, jurisdictional challenges. I would be happy to, to discuss how we were able to, or how we sought to address the jurisdictional challenges that were thrown against us in the open forum later. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed, Commissioner Cadiz. Um, we don't have a huge amount of time left, uh, so I think um, we'll try and be relatively quick with this next stage, which I ask the panel to respond uh, to questions. I wanted in particular to ask you, Commissioner Cadiz, if I may. Um, so um, this process here and in Manila and in New York has garnered a huge amount of attention. It's generated immense interest, immense media coverage. Uh, it's become enormously, um, it's generated momentum of its own, it seems. I was wondering, here in London, um, and I know you can't preempt where your uh, inquiry is taking you, but what, um, were there any specific moments or statements or um, observations from the various people who made, uh, who, who gave testimony that jumped out at you and that, that you feel are important? Well, first let me say that uh, the, the past two days of hearings were overwhelming. In fact, there were occasions when we had to call time out just to absorb the, 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 the knowledge that was, be, that was being shared by the resource persons. Yeah, uh, there were a lot. Uh, where do I begin? <laughs> um, well, the, 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 the scientific evidence as of now is enormous, uh, uh, tending to establish that indeed uh, climate change is upon us and that the carbon majors have a role to play, have a significant uh, contribution to this. I think that's that's already a very, very settled issue insofar as the, our inquiry is concerned. Um, and right now we are just looking at how we will form the recommendations that will be coming out of all, all these evidence that have been presented before us. Thank you very much, very discreet. Um, for my other panelists, maybe very quickly, uh, I'm wondering, so it's now 10 years since human rights have become a key part of the way in which we approach climate change, certainly as a legal problem. Um, I'm wondering if you could say quickly how human rights, a human rights approach or the introduction or injection of human rights norms and principles have changed or informed your work as respectively, I suppose, uh, an activist, in your case, uh, Kristen, um, a scientist, in your case, Luke, and perhaps hear your work on the different impacts in high-income and low-income countries as relevant um, and as a, a lawyer or a litigation strategist, perhaps, uh, Annalisa. Um, Kristen? Yeah, great. Um, I think that taking a human rights-based approach has fundamentally changed how we have gone about our work as campaigners and activists. And it, it just gives you a moment to just say in the room, when you look at the, the work that we do as Greenpeace and on this work, it's not just about a lawyer here. We have digital and communications experts. We have uh, community leaders here with us. So it really brings people and communities at the heart of what we do. 
Um, it's not about polar bears. It's about the mothers, the daughters, the fathers, the grandparents. And so um, really bringing those, those people at the center and at the heart of it. Um, and so that's where it's changed. And also what it's done is it's allowed us to break out of the silos that I think that the climate change conversation has been in for very long, that it's been an environmental issue discussed within the UNFCCC, um, sorry, the UN Convention on Climate Change. Talking about human rights has led us to team up with amazing organizations like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch and to community organizations that are on the ground and dealing with the impacts. So the engagement and legal mobilizing the law has opened us up to bring in more people who are willing to listen and then willing to act. Thank you. Um, Luke? Um, yeah, so I certainly think, I don't know, what microphone do I? Okay. Um, <laughs> all of them work. <laughs> brilliant. I, I certainly think that from a, from a scientific perspective, um, this addition of sort of a human rights lens has really changed the way we think about how we approach our research. Um, certainly in the last, even just five years, we've gone from thinking about research questions which are talking about, you know, land area exposed to some fraction of temperature rise, which is pretty boring, um, to actually thinking, actually, where do people live? Um, where will people live in the future? Um, and what is going to be happening to those people? And, in fact, we can now, we've changed the way we talk about things, and we can start talking about, okay, what about exposure to heat extremes for low-income countries versus high-income countries, and what are the relative disparities between those um, two groups of nations? Um, and on top of that, we can think about, uh, you know, we, uh, one, an important aspect is, is, of course, food security, um, and we can actually ask from a sort of scientific perspective um, what locations are deriving their food, um, their source of food, which are most directly linked to, to climate um, directly, so in terms of like rain-fed agriculture versus places which probably have a bit more of a buffering impact. And can we actually ask questions about, okay, changes in those places where people are, um, have much more potential exposure and vulnerability, um, what are the relative differences between these sort of locations? So it, it changes from basically asking very, um, to critique my own research community, I suppose, very boring and stale questions to ones that actually have some relevance to what people are thinking about. The translation of the climate term vulnerability to the more yeah. legal or normative term of rights. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Annalisa. Um, yeah, thank you very much. This is actually the last thing I was going to mention in my presentation. I think historically human rights law has been used in the context of environmental concerns for three main purposes. First, a gap filler. Uh, when we have areas that are not adequately protected by existing law or where the law is not properly enforced, human rights <laughs> law is being used as a gap filler in order to address those interstitial areas for lack of better laws and or remedies. Uh, so they provide remedies where none are available. And again, we have plenty of evidence of that having occurred in other areas, and now it's been used in relation to climate change impacts. And finally, and importantly, uh, as a leveler to change legal culture, because this is what we need on this specific problem right now. The rhetorical power of human rights can be used in order to effect change in the way lawmakers and enforcers think about what they are doing. 
Thank you very much. Um, so we have about 15 minutes, perhaps a couple more if we take into account our slightly late start for questions from the floor. Um, we have a roving mic. Um, if I could ask you to say your name um, before you ask your question and speak clearly into the microphone um, because we are being recorded, that would be very helpful. Um, do we have a mic upstairs as well, by the way? Yeah, great. Okay, um, let's start uh, maybe here. Good evening. Um, thank you very much for uh, these wonderful presentations. Uh, I'm Viela Hevat, and I'm um, also an associate professor at the LSE Law Department. And I have a very brief question for whoever on the panel feels called to answer it. Strategically speaking, do you think it would be a good idea to push for, to campaign for, a bespoke human right to a stable climate? Thank you, Verla. Before responding, shall we take a second? Um, I'm seeing somebody at the front in the, in the top. <laughs> start perhaps um, with you, Commissioner, on maybe the first question on the bespoke human right to the environment. Is that? I, I did. I'm sorry. I, I did quite appreciate the. Like, I, I was not able to properly intake. So I think the question. Could you reformulate? Yeah, I think Verla's question was. Stable climates. Again, can you, my, my ears are burning. Whether we should strategically seek a mm -hmm. human right to a stable climate. Strategically seek a human right to a stable climate. So, the list of international human rights, should we extend it to include a human right to a stable environment? Perhaps Christian uh, might want to take this, though. Yes. Yeah, I could. Um, so, you're referring to a right that was briefly mentioned, and I'm going to get it wrong, but it was in one of uh, the Judge Aiken's decision in the Juliana v. U.S. case. It was mentioned in one of the, the, I think, a decision on the motions to dismiss. And please correct me if I'm wrong, anyone after this. And that is one of the most beautiful statements that we have yet on climate change and the law and human rights. Um, I think right now what we're seeing, and I'm going to take us back just a couple weeks ago, or maybe even two weeks ago, uh, the new UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and Environment was in New York and introduced a study before the UN General Assembly seeking global recognition of the right to a healthy environment. 
Now, I think that there's many ways that people will argue this, but is a right to a safe and stable climate embedded in that right to a healthy environment? Is it, can it be taken from the right to health, the right to private and family life? I think that we're going to see this evolve over time. And I think that this is, in our communications, we talk about that right. We uh, say that the right to a healthy environment and the right to a stable climate. Um, whether that will get recognition through either a national court action or through the human rights bodies, we're going to see. But I think as much as we can talk about what our rights are, in whatever way we see is best, it's, it's, it's going to happen. And so I think the next step will probably be the global recognition to the right to a healthy environment, and hopefully we'll see more discussion in the courts and through decisions on that right to a safe climate. Did you want to speak to this also? On the, on the same issue, um, my more nuanced view perhaps would be that um, it's fine and good to have new human rights. The issue is what you do with them. Mm. So it's good as far as it's enforceable, as far as you can use it for something that is added value compared with the existing catalog of human rights. And so it's an open conversation. Do we need the right to a clean environment or not? Does it make a difference to have it in your constitution, in your National Human Rights Act, in an international treaty? And I think it's very interesting and important to have these conversations and understand what the added value is. And if there is added value, definitely add it. But it's true that it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's not until you tried having it, and then you can see what difference this has made. Thank you very much. Is anybody, what about that wonderful question about China has mm. recently refused to continue importing um, waste for recycling um, and whether this raises human rights issues? Uh, there's questions on that. So anybody want to take those on? Joanna, too. Or... I can take it as well, yes. <laughs> um, I do think that um, that speaks to the very big distributive justice questions that exist today. And not only in relation to climate change, but in general about environmental concerns. And the way we've dealt with these questions clearly has been by moving the problem around where oftentimes there was a less alert or a less vigilant um, public or a less empowered public. So it's amazing that climate change is opening all these conversations now globally because we can't get away from environmental problems simply by shifting them on. And I do think, without going into the merit of whether or not China did a good move here, it's an important question that we all have to ask ourselves. Uh, how do we deal with the distributive justice implications of dealing with environmental problems? And this is, I guess, one of the reasons we're here today, because this is another distributive justice concern. Thank you very much. I have a question here at the front and the lady behind you as well. You can start, yes. Richard Lord, uh, barrister. I wanted to ask the panel how important they think Paris is in a human rights context. And, and the context for that is that seems to me one of the obstacles for human rights cases is that even if they're engaged, they're not absolute. There's a big margin of appreciation, so governments can say, we can't do this because it's too expensive, and they're backed by corporate interests who say, even if you can, you shouldn't because we're providing a vital service. And Paris perhaps seals that avenue off uh, to some extent, and I wonder if the panel uh, have any thoughts on that. Um. Thank you very much. And the lady directly behind you. Um, 
it has been uh, uh, made clear that climate uh, that human rights can uh, contribute uh, to climate litigation to uh, climate action. Uh, if we think in the other way around, do you think that climate change can uh, can trigger? changes, development in human rights, that it can work as a catalyzer of changes in human rights, for example, uh, considering the protection to the environment, not the, I'm not talking specifically about the human rights to a healthy environment, but the protection of the environment uh, under the scope of human rights and not only centered on in the individual protection. Thank you. So wonderful, a reversal of the usual question as to whether hu uh, human rights can be a catalyst for climate change, rather, can climate change be a catalyst for increasing human rights protection? Um, any takers? Eck and Paris. Um, <laughs> you can go first. And I, think I just want to offer it. Do you, does anyone else want to speak first? Joanna, do you want to go? Okay, I'll just say on Paris. Um, Paris alone, what we're seeing is that we got to get countries to align with the Paris targets, the temperature targets, right? One, the aim is 1.5. I think the IPCC report now settles. 1.5 is really the limit, is the guardrail. Um, and it's used as a tool. It cannot be the only thing that opens up the climate action at the national level. And that's where human rights come in, so important as the kind of qualifying test that needs to be applied at the national level on any laws. So it's a non-answer in some ways. But Paris remains important, but not the only way to get there. Um, what I would say is that um, we just had a piece out on the Carbon the Climate Law Review <laughs> on the entry points to address better and more human rights in the context of the implementation guidelines of the mm -hmm. Paris Agreement. You thought it was done, but clearly there is more work to be done for the implementation of a treaty when you adopt one, and this is what the parties will be doing in Katowice in a few weeks, hopefully. So um, in the context of those conversations, it's important to understand where and how human rights can and should play an influence, given that the, climate, the, the Paris Agreement is the first climate treaty, the first environmental treaty ever to explicitly mention human rights. Will it make a difference? We'll see. We hope. But it's true that the political climate is not particularly exciting, and we have to be mindful of that, unfortunately. So ambition is um, difficult. Um, and I, I would like to address uh, the question on, on the reverse order. Uh, we've been talking about how human rights influence climate change, how it would be the other way around. And I think it's, it's a good question because uh, climate change emerged in the last few decades as uh, one of these umbrella concepts that everything can fall into that. But uh, it, then it, it, I, I see there is a risk that then it became something isolated again. And I would uh, say that processes such as the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, have been trying to force us to see things in the other way around. So you, know, you have to connect human rights, so, uh, uh, reducing poverty, access to water, uh, 
you know, it, it's, it, you cannot just see uh, them in separate ways. And I, I would uh, say the SDGs, although of course they have many limitations, they are helping us to think along these lines. And, and, and I would argue it is very important not to isolate, but to start bridging these agendas. Thank you very much. I'm afraid we're more or less at the close of matters now. I think Joanna had a small announcement to yes. make before we finally close up. Let's ask you to do that. Okay. Um, so I was planning a bit of a grand finale for this. Um, let me find here. Um, so tonight we would like to launch a competition. Uh, this is something that uh, Annalisa and I started discussing. We wanted two things. First, we wanted to involve students in, in this case, which is, as I said, something that is definitely very important and groundbreaking. But also, we wanted to involve them in a way that perhaps could be useful. So from this conversation, uh, we thought, well, let's launch a competition for students from all around the world, undergrads, grads, so masters, PhDs, all students, to answer to the following question. What recommendations should the Philippines Human Rights Commission give as a result of the Carbon Majors Inquiry? So we want to, it's not a question that has a correct answer. It's a question that you can be creative. And we hope that this will be something that uh, teachers, professors can work with their students and that students can work individually or in groups and submit up to a thousand words, which is not much, to this email by Friday the 1st of March of 2019, so plenty of time. Um, this is something that we are also doing in collaboration with the Environmental Science for Social Change um, Institute, which is uh, has been providing technical support to the Commission uh, of Human Rights of the Philippines, and uh, more information can be found in their website. And I think this, uh, Annalisa, do you want to add something? Um, that the submissions will be judged by a, a panel of experts, and that the winner will get a small, but not insignificant, <laughs> cash prize made available by LSC. Uh, the uh, entry, the winning entry, will also be published in Ratio. So, thanks uh, to Dr. Billy Heyward, who uh, kindly got the London School of Economics Law Department involved in this. And there are three prizes. One, uh, uh, the Commission will provide a certificate to the best entry. Second, the best entry will be published in Ratio, the magazine published by the Law Department. And thirdly, the winner will have uh, two. 250 pounds in cash to do any good thing for the planet. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I think it remains only for me to say thank you very much to our wonderful uh, panelists today, Annalisa Savarese, Christian Casper, Luke Harrington, Joanna Setzer, and in particular, Commissioner Roberto Cadiz, who has had a very grueling couple of days um, listening to uh, some extraordinary information, and especially uh, to you, the audience. Thank you very much indeed, and have a good night.